This is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA and speak to the journalists who cover them. I'm joined by Paul Eckert, who heads up RFA's English service. How are you, Paul? I'm doing great. Thanks, Matt. Good. Glad to hear it. Now, it's sad to say that none of the countries covered by RFA has a good record when it comes to human rights. Vietnam is certainly no exception. Its treatment of dissidents in prison is notorious. Later in the show, I'll be speaking to Yang Nguyen of our Vietnamese service about a particularly sinister and far from isolated case in which a land activist has been held at a mental health institution. The reason? Because he refuses to answer his interrogator's questions. Now, Paul, I know you're focusing on China this week and folk with a very different station in the communist hierarchy who seem all too eager to dominate the conversation. Yes, Matt. China is Vietnam's fellow communist neighbor and has done all that and worse to its dissidents for 30 more years. And unlike Vietnam, it blocks Facebook entirely. Beijing also bans Twitter. But we'll soon see that that hasn't stopped Chinese diplomats from using that platform to stir up controversy. Today, we're going to look at the Chinese elite and top diplomats and the fresh evidence that they've embraced the jingoistic populism that was once the province of Beijing's infamous Global Times tabloid. In my five years in Beijing and two decades covering China since, Chinese diplomats were always the most bland and predictable ones in the profession, with no authority to go off state talking points. But in recent years, mostly junior Chinese diplomats, embassy press officers in Western countries have come to be known as wolf warrior diplomats for their pugnacious style of critics on Twitter, which ordinary citizens in China can't even access. The wolf warrior term came from a Chinese blockbuster Rambo style movie in which Chinese heroes shot up evil Westerners in an unnamed African country. In Alaska last week, the first meeting between the Biden administration and their Chinese counterparts, China's senior most diplomat, Yang Jiechir, used the wolf warrior script to berate Secretary of State Antony Blinken and his delegation for 16 whole minutes, a full eight times his allotted two-minute time for speaking and opening remarks. Yang's wolf routine went down like a wet dog at a wedding in Washington and Western capitals, but the quotes are being sold on bumper stickers and t-shirts back in China. At the same time, those outbursts and others like his, coming from envoys in France and Germany, are having a negative impact on perceptions and decision-making towards China. To help us understand these actions, my guest today is Taiwan journalist Rita Chung, who joined RFA in 2019 after five years covering Washington and three years reporting from Shanghai for Taiwan's central news agency. Thank you for making time for us today, Rita. And how is working at home going for you after a full year of it? Hi, Paul. Thank you for having me. I'm still so far so good and then hanging there. <laughs> Hope you are the same. Thanks, and it's good to hear. Um, we're all doing our best, I guess. For the unfamiliar listener, what exactly is wolf warrior diplomacy? And when did you start to become aware of it in your own reporting? Yeah, Paul, I would just say that the film you just mentioned is a very patriotic and like you say, it's a, like a rainbow style one. And uh, I would say it was trying to create the image of the Chinese government with two main message. The number one is to the rest of the world. It was trying to say that whoever offends China will be punished no matter how far you are. And then he also tried to propaganda to the Chinese people that your motherland, China, 
will have your back and is going to bring you home, no matter wherever or or whenever you are in danger above. So of course that we are not going into detail to the second message, but like you you just mentioned, the first one has become like the principle for the Chinese diplomats around the world. And then if we are going to talk about the world warrior diplomacy, I cannot forget the rising spokesperson, China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Zhao Lijian. I, I thought that you probably will have like a very strong impression about him as well. I and do. I, yeah, right. And I think it all started in 2019 when Zhao was still facing Pakistan. And then he used it like, like the platform that you just mentioned. He used Twitter to criticize the U.S. has a bad record on human rights, especially on the racial issue. But however, he is not in charge of dealing with the U.S. affairs. And then he tweet, let me quote, if you are in Washington, D.C., you know that the white never go to the southwest area because it's an area for the black and Latin. And there is a saying, black in and white out, end quote. It sounds very unprecedented and a little bit unpleasant, right? And then, of course, there are a lot of people have like a reaction, such as the former National Security Advisor, Susan Rice. She pushed back on Twitter as well and called Zhao as a racist disgrace and ignorant. And you know what? Then Zhao didn't back down and then was fighting back soon by calling Ambassador Susan Rice as a disgraceful and disgusting. And then I was just very surprised. I still remember that. And I was shocked as, as well. Although that he he had to delete that tweet, but but I couldn't help but wonder that how can a Chinese diplomat use such a platform? And actually they have like the privilege to use Twitter and then Facebook. Like you say that it's not allowed for the most of the Chinese people. Here's my yeah. thing, yeah. I mean, mm. so you were wondering about that, about Zhao. And even though it was kind of disgraceful what he did, he ended up mm -hmm. getting promoted. And now he's a spokesman exactly. in Beijing. What do you think exactly. about that? So that's why I think it sent a very clear message to most of the Chinese diplomat. As long as you act you or you represent the country more aggressive or hawkish style, then you will get promoted easily, right? <laughs> but uh, you can't be an independent freelance diplomat in any country, let alone authoritarian China. So behind exactly. him must be a purpose. Why do you think China is doing this beyond the movie message of a Chinese wolf warrior Rambo. Does China think this helps? I will start with an old saying in America that all politics is local. That's one of my favorite <laughs> sentence. And I think for the China and CCP, the diplomacy also reflects and serves domestic politic interests as well. And then we have to go back to the doctrine since the President Xi Jinping took the office. He has the ambition about the China's rejuvenation. It begins with the policy of telling Chinese story well. He talked to the CCP members in an event that the CCP member has to be dare to fight and strive for fighting. So that's why we saw a very aggressive diplomatic approach all around the world. Were you surprised that Yang Jiechir and Wang Yi themselves were wolf warriors as opposed to the younger guys like Zhao Lijian and, of course, Hua Chunying, a lady? 
for Wang Bi, I wasn't surprised. But for Yang Jiechi, I talked with a lot of U.S. diplomat and retired diplomat here that they was a little bit surprised because he's not very like a passionate person. However, he was very rational and the thoughtful one. And they they are still thinking that he is a decent man. One, the retired diplomat used the word to describe him. We know that uh, it creates a lot of headlines and a lot of news around the world, the meeting mm -hmm. in Alaska and a lot of speculation. And as I said mm -hmm. earlier, they're actually printing uh, Twin Busia t-shirts for these, uh, yes. the quote, for the quote uh, which is quite colorful and interesting. But yeah. around the world, has this really helped China at all? And I'm not just talking about the case of Alaska, but the other case with Jali Jen and some of the other things we know that are going on in France and Germany, where it doesn't seem that they're helping China advance any goals. Yeah, I would agree with you. We, we thought that it's not helpful at all, right? But however, that we, we also seen that the nationalists keep rising in China and people are boycotting the U.S. fashion brands recently just because the, the U.S. and the European country are sanctioned to the Uyghur's human rights issue. And then they are fighting back and then Nike become the latest victim. I think that for the Chinese leadership, they are eager the dignity and then respect. However, they are approaching it in a wrong way. So, because to me, the dignity and respect are earned by not just what you say and demand, but by the behavior and the act you have. Then, but of course, uh, maybe in Chinese leadership point of view, they view the world in a totally different point. So that's why we saw there are a lot of wolf warrior diplomats. <laughs> it is quite interesting. And as yeah. you said, it has real world impacts. You talk about the H&M mm. and the textile companies. And it seems to me that China whipped that up when it wouldn't have really mattered that much because the statements they were looking at were a year old and it wasn't in the news. And suddenly the Communist Youth League exactly. grabbed, grabbed onto uh, uh, these slogans and decided to beat them up. And again, those companies employ a lot of Chinese and manufacture there. So, you know, there might be a short-term burst of nationalistic energy that they get from it, but I think the long-term business reputation could suffer. Exactly. But the point is that I think from Xi's point of view, I think that he feels quite confident enough. Eastern is rising and then Western is declining. So then I wasn't surprised that what all this happened. But it's dangerous, I have to say. Sure enough. Do you think uh, China cares about its soft power these days, even though they're doing a lot of things that seem to harm it while they do play well at home? It's very counterproductive, especially for a new rising power like China. I was studying a little bit about the Chinese diplomacy. And they started with the, the Panda diplomacy. They are trying to show in the, like a lovable and a very friendly image to the world. However, it becomes wolf warrior diplomacy. And then of course, there are still like a debating inside the Chinese diplomat community. And then I remember there's one ambassador to Italy. I forgot his name, but he said that he wouldn't use the wolf warrior to describe Chinese diplomacy, but Kung Fu Panda, Kung Fu Panda. However, that we, we never saw the Kung Fu Panda more nowadays. You don't have to be cruel to be strong or gray. 
once again, I want to go back to the old saying that I love, it's, it's old politics is local. And then if China want to have a better image toward the world or the international society, I think they should treat Chinese people better with more dignity and then respect. And then that's the way and an approach to showing a better soft power image of China. That makes a lot of sense, and I hadn't thought of it that way, but uh, yeah. it's it's also the all politics is local mantra. So, mm. Rita, that was uh, very perceptive and informative for me, and I followed this material very closely. So, I, again, I want to take time to thank you for joining us at Eyes on Asia, our weekly podcast on regional events. Yeah, thank you for having me. Happy to talk with you. Now we turn our attention to Vietnam. In the past week, RFA Vietnamese, which closely follows the plight of the country's many dissidents, has been reporting on Chin Ba Phung, a land activist who was arrested last June. The service learned some disturbing information about the conditions of his detention, that he'd been sent to a state-run mental hospital, although it's not thought there's any medical reason for doing that. I'll be speaking with Yang Nguyen of RFA Vietnamese about this case, She's been probing into whether it's a tactic used by Vietnamese authorities against prisoners of conscience. Welcome, Yang. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. Sure thing. So can you tell us a little bit about Phung? What's his background and why was he arrested in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. So Jen Ba Phung is a uh, well-known land rights activist in Vietnam. Uh, he is kind of following in his family's footsteps. They have been um, fighting for their uh, against their own land grab of their own farm for more than a decade. So he's been following his parents in fighting for their rights for many years. They have a farm in Yung Noi. It's a village out on the outskirts of Hanoi, and it was taken by the government, and they were reimbursed at a very, very low rate. So they have been protesting that and filed petitions. And from then, they have expanded their activism to speak out for other aggrieved citizens that have had their lands taken by the government. He's a young man, um, 36 years old. He's married, has two little boys. And in fact, the oldest boy is three. And his wife actually gave birth to his second child just four days before he was arrested. So he was arrested in June of last year. Uh, and this comes after his family had been very vocal about another land rights situation that we all know about, which was the Dong Tam case where police raided the village of Dong Tam. And in the process, three people were killed, including the village elder. So they have been passing information about this incident, publicized it and advocated for the Dong Tam residents. And it is thought that he was arrested following that. So he and three others, um, two from his own family and another person were arrested, all charged with conducting anti-state propaganda. Okay. I mean, the Dong Tam case has been a huge story in Vietnam and a bit of a lightning rod for land activists, I think. You mentioned that uh, he has other family members who've been arrested because of their activism. Can you just tell us briefly who are the relatives who've also been arrested? Right. So um, the other two of his family, his immediate family that uh, were arrested in June were his mother, Gung Ti Teo, also a well-known uh, land rights activist, his younger brother, Jin Ba Tu, 
and another um, aggrieved citizen from the village, from their village, Yunoi, which is Um, They were all arrested. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the family of Jin Bafung has been fighting against land grabs for more than a decade. And both his mother and his father were previously prisoners. You know, we call them prisoners of conscience because they were in prison for speaking up uh, against these injustices. In the latest development that we've just learned, um, his father, who has been kind of like the lone family member, you know, still outside to to advocate on their behalf, has been summoned by police uh, because he is still advocating for them. He's still speaking out, criticizing the party, criticizing security officers for their maltreatment of his family members. And police have asked him to take down the Facebook posts about that and take down his live streams. So now his father is also at risk of being arrested and, and that would make four of the family. My goodness, it sounds like a real dragnet against their family. So what's the latest that we've learned about Hung? I saw that we reported last week, I think it was, mm-hmm. that his wife had gone to visit him in prison in Hanoi and found out that he'd been moved from that prison without her knowledge. Yeah, it's very concerning. We know that he has been moved to a mental health hospital and his wife, his family learned about it in a very roundabout way. So about a week ago on the 19th, his wife, Do Titu, went to the temporary facility where he is being held in Hanoi to visit him. And she was told that he had been moved two, three weeks ago already. But at that time, they didn't even tell her where he had been moved. So three days later, she goes back and then she is told that he was moved to this mental health um, facility in Tung Tung District in Hanoi for a four to six week evaluation. Okay. So have they gone into any more depth about why this evaluation is required? Yeah, and this is very, very curious to say the least. So they say that he was uncooperative with police. He uh, refuses to look at his interrogators. He refuses to answer their questions. And presumably they took that as a reason for taking him to the mental health hospital. It's also interesting to note that back in um, September of last year, his wife had already been summoned to the police. And at that time, investigators, interrogators, asked her if Fung had any history or if the family had any history of mental health illnesses or depression. So we can presume that they have been thinking about this move for a long time. And it's important to note that obviously the wife and many um, people surrounding the family have stated categorically that there is no mental health history in the family. Okay. So it seems like although under Vietnam's constitution, you I think you have a right to silence and not self-incriminate, he's sort of being persecuted and evaluated as a mentally troubled person because he doesn't want to speak to the police. And um, I want to add that he, you know, has told his wife and he has said that he is exercising his right to silence. So we know that he is doing this very, very consciously. Right. So... Has this happened before to prisoners of conscience in Vietnam being sent to mental health institutions? 
Yes, unfortunately, it's not an isolated case. It has happened many times before, and two uh, recent cases come to mind. One is of blogger Lei Anhong. He is a contributor to the Voice of America. He's also a member of the Brotherhood for Democracy and an independent journalist with the Independent Journalist Association of Vietnam. And he was arrested in 2018. And also, while he was in temporary detention, just like Phu Mao, he was moved to that same state mental health hospital. And more concerning, we're told that he refused to take medicine for his mental health because he said he doesn't have any mental health issues. But they forcefully, you know, they bound him up and they forcefully injected him with medicine. So it's, it's very disturbing news that we heard about his case. Another case is the dissident writer Pham Tan. He was just recently, in November of last year, also transferred to a mental health facility while he was in temporary detention. One of the close family friends uh, of Fung told us that the families of all these cases had never been notified of this transfer until after the fact. Okay. So wh what do human rights activists and experts say about this? I mean, what would be the motivation of authorities to transfer such prisoners of conscience to mental health institutions? Yeah, I spoke with a, a former prisoner of conscience, Pham Tan Ying. She is also a human rights activist uh, who had spent time in prison for her beliefs. She described them as very Stalinesque tactics that were used in the former Soviet, Soviet Union, where you know the Secret Service used this tactic to move dissidents to mental health institutions. And she says that this is an escalation in the treatment of Fung to get him to confess. It's a revenge for him, you know, staying silent. And she described the goal of these transfers to mental health institutions as a way to destroy the prisoner's spirit, to destroy their bodies and, and their will and their intellect. I also spoke to Amnesty International about this, and they categorically say that, you know, torture and ill treatment, including at mental health uh, facilities, is prohibited under international human rights law. Amnesty is currently investigating um, these reports of, of these prisoners of conscience being detained at mental health uh, institutions. Yeah, it is a sinister tactic. So we've seen increased arrests of dissidents in the past year or so ahead of the party congress, the once in five years Communist Party Congress that took place in January. From what you can see, is there any sign that authorities are easing up on these arrests of dissidents now that the new party leadership is in place? I think it's, it's important to note that, you know, there's another um, election coming up of the National Assembly. I think it's important that we measure the, the suppression of dissident voices, not just in the number of arrests, but also what is happening behind bars, as we can see in the, you know, three cases I just mentioned. We've heard a lot of alarming news in recent days. Unfortunately, the treatment of dissidents, people who are speaking out continues with arrest as well as with treatment behind bars that are harder to see. Yeah, it does seem to be that way. The government in Vietnam does not brook any dissent. Yang, thank you so much for walking us through this disturbing story and the plight of dissidents in Vietnam. You're welcome. So what do you make of that, Paul? As chilling as that count was, it's not an isolated case. The Soviet Union was well known for doing that with its dissidents, putting them in institutions and using drugs on them. And China followed suit in that regard. So it's ultimately not that surprising that it's still going on in Hanoi. 
sad to say that the old forms of repression are enduring. Please join us again next week. Until then, you can read RFA coverage on our website, rfa.org. Our past podcasts can be found on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you've any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. It stands for Eyes on Asia. I'm Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia with Paul Eckert. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again 